Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to another weekend bonus episode of the Tech Meme Ride Home. I'm Brian McCullough. I am honored to be speaking today to Lloyd Miner, the dean of the Stanford University School of Medicine. Dean Miner has a new book out called Discovering Precision Health. And if you are interested in health tech at all, especially if you are interested in trying your hand at a health tech startup, this is required reading. And for the rest of us, it's also a great primer on how tech is about to transform health and what we can hopefully look forward to as tech finally, again, hopefully, disrupts the healthcare space in a positive way. Lloyd, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Um, Because of the nature of what we talk about on the show every day, we're going to talk a lot about, you know, health tech and, and disruption in the healthcare space. But before we do that, I wonder if you could just outline the basic thesis of your book. The book, we'll talk about it again at the end, but it's Discovering Precision Health. So what is precision health and why do you think we should be on the cusp of seeing it brought to fruition? Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Precision health is about keeping us healthy. When we're sick, when we have cancer or heart disease, we want precision medicine. We want the very best sick care individualized to us. But shouldn't we really be trying to keep ourselves healthier for a longer period of time? So precision health is about predicting, preventing, and curing disease precisely. In particular, it's about placing a lot more emphasis on the science and on the implementation of prediction and prevention. Because if we're able to predict disease through more accurate diagnostic and screening testing, if we're able to prevent disease through changing our behaviors, through looking at our risk factors and then modifying what we do to maintain our health based on our risk factors, we're able to do those things, then the need for the ultra-acute care, which for so long has characterized our delivery system in the United States, that need should be reduced over time, and we'll all be healthier because of it, and we'll be able to deliver more effective health care. And you're obviously emphasizing that word precision. Um, I, in your book, you talk about, you know, a lot of healthcare right now is one size fits all. So, so tell me more about how, like, being precise is, is key to all of this as well. Certainly. I mean, a great example of precision is the approach today to treating breast cancer. Breast cancer is not a one size fits all disease. The receptor status of the tumor, uh, the age of the patient at the time of diagnosis, there are a host of different factors that go into determining the most effective treatment for a patient with breast cancer. And as a result, as a result of that individualization of treatment, the result of being able to tailor treatment based on a lot of different characteristics of the disease and the patient, the result is that our outcomes are much better than they were when we just had a one-size-fits-all of doing the mastectomy, and then giving radiation, maybe with or without chemotherapy. That's a great example of how precision has helped to achieve better outcomes. 
let's um, let's move on to talking about technology's role in in achieving this. Um, you you describe how <laughs> the most sophisticated piece of technology in most doctors' offices even today is the fax machine, which obviously is something yeah. that a, a lot of the world has moved on from. So why has healthcare? Do you think not medicine itself, but but healthcare and health delivery? Um, the practice of healthcare. Why has it been such a difficult nut for for technology to crack up until now? I think there are a variety of reasons, and some of them are appropriate, and you can understand them. We absolutely have to ensure privacy and security of health related data. Um, however, the financial services industry has figured out how to do that, and other uh, aspects of the economy as well. Uh, have developed secure systems for exchanging and holding information. We should be able to do the same thing in healthcare. There are also some significant challenges and problems with the electronic health record systems that are being widely used across the United States today. They're based upon technology platforms that were developed in many cases in the 1970s, and they were also initially designed to be billing systems, not systems uh, that help physicians deliver better care and that help patients interact with their care and with their providers uh, in more informative ways. Those issues you know, come together to create an environment in which technology has not had the same sort of transformative effects that it's had in virtually every aspect of our lives you know, other than healthcare. For example, today, the way you and I order goods and services, the way you perform financial transactions, that's radically different than it was a decade ago. Yet today, most of us still pick up the phone and place a call to an office of a doctor or other healthcare provider if we want to make an appointment. We still bring our paper records with us or we have them faxed to the doctor's office in advance. We haven't seen that same sort of disruption that has occurred in every other sector of the economy. It does seem, though, I mean, I, I, it seems like every day I'm doing another story about a, a, a new health tech startup or somebody that's raised around or whatever. And in, in the book, actually, you, you have the actual data. You pointed out that in uh, 2018, $8.1 billion was invested in digital health startups. That's up from the $5.7 billion the year before and up from just $1.1 billion about a decade ago. I'm curious, um, what do you think has changed that has suddenly made healthcare a, a fertile ground for investment and, and new companies? I think several things have changed. One is that we're seeing some really bright, energetic entrepreneurs get very interested in health and healthcare delivery. That's a good thing because they bring with them enormous knowledge and tremendous amount of passion and dedication to really having impact uh, in ways that Perhaps those same entrepreneurs would be attracted to other sectors of technology in the past, but now they're migrating to healthcare. And the entrepreneurs that I interact with and the venture capitalists that are providing the support for those entrepreneurs, I believe that today there's a real enthusiasm for having impact. There's an enthusiasm for bringing the same sort of transformative disruptions that have occurred in other aspects of technology where technology has been applied to other um, other activities, they're taking that passion and that entrepreneurship and applying it to issues we have in health and healthcare. 
I think that's the fundamental difference. Um, we're starting to see uh, some exits that are favorable uh, from digital health companies. It's early on to know whether or not that's going to last um, and, and, and whether or not those companies will, um, will continue to thrive uh, as they have either gone through IPO or gone into the later rounds of their funding. But I think there are encouraging results from activities in companies like Foundation Medicine, Flatiron, other companies like Omada and uh, Lebongo. I mean, these companies are thriving in terms of their businesses, and they're also showing real impact in health. Uh, so that, that's obviously what we want to see. Uh, we want to see the companies have the technologies embraced by and produced by the companies having an impact on health and healthcare. And, and obviously, if they're going to succeed, they have to do well from a business point of view. And I believe there's some examples of that occurring, uh, where both the companies are having impact and they're doing well um, in terms of, of their businesses. Yeah, that's one of the things that I liked about the book is that you there's many, many examples, like real-time, real-world examples of, of companies that are, are finding success. There's also, there's a section in the book where you talk about what it what it takes for a startup to succeed in the healthcare sector. And you sort of describe the situation where there's kind of no overlap between two different worlds, where like the people that are already in the healthcare system who know the system, understand how it works, you know, that the healthcare practitioners who should be the natural entrepreneurs to maybe rise up and disrupt the system, they're so caught up in the day-to-day of the healthcare system and delivery of it that it's hard for them to make the time to start a company. Meanwhile, you have, you know, people outside healthcare that want to come in and think the way to disrupt the system is maybe to just bypass it. And they fail often because they don't understand how the system works, you know, and maybe has to function. Um, so how do you, is, is there a way to square that where um, the, these two kind of ways of creating a company don't quite overlap? I think there's several ways. One is to get more healthcare providers interacted with, engaged with uh, entrepreneurs and technology experts. And the companies that have been successful uh, have done exactly that. And But we need to see more of that. Uh, in our medical school, for example, um, I'm pleased that many of our medical students get involved with startups during their medical school experience or shortly thereafter. Our medical students are overwhelmingly attracted to going into medicine because they want to have an impact in the lives of people and in delivering patient care. But I think increasingly there's a larger number of students that are recognizing they can have that impact for sure in directly interacting with patients, and we want them to do that. First and foremost, we train outstanding physicians in, uh, in our MD programs, and we also want a cohort from that group of outstanding physicians to be engaged in transforming the way medicine is practiced and the way healthcare is delivered. And that intersection between someone who is very well trained in the science and in the compassion and in the practice of medicine and someone who can have an intelligent dialogue with a technologist and really help that technologist to understand the day-to-day issues that physicians and patients deal with that interaction is something we want to foster here at Stanford. Yeah, you wrote that like the the keys to succeeding as a healthcare startup are to 
number one, solve a, a truly hard problem, which, you know, that's what every startup wants to do in theory. Um, also deliver a delightful user experience that results in sustained user engagement and behavioral change, which again, okay, you want, you want the product to be useful and delightful. But also, a, an entrepreneur in the space needs to be a great enterprise entrepreneur to know how to navigate the the health ecosystem as well. Like for example, you, you talk about how such a large portion portion of the the healthcare system right now in the U.S. is nonprofit. So, as an example, you you would need to know to understand how selling into that market is is functionally different. Exactly, and, and that oftentimes is the hangup. If you're a chief information officer of a healthcare delivery system. What you think about day in and day out is making sure that the systems are working, that they're working accurately, that there's no downtime. Uh, there's huge consequences of even, even seconds to minutes of having downtime and in information systems that are running hospitals and delivery systems. So you're inherently conservative uh, because you need to be. You, your first responsibility is to uh, the people in your organization that are delivering care and the people who come to your organization to receive care. And therefore, you're going to be inherently skeptical about someone who says, oh, I can completely change your world. I can make everything work so much better and more efficiently, and you'll deliver better care. You'll have a better patient experience. Um, you know, there's a pretty high bar to overcome the understandable skepticism. And I think the most successful entrepreneurs and businesses figure out how to navigate that. Maybe maybe it starts small. Maybe rather than going designing apps and technologies that that are marketed to and interface directly with delivery systems, maybe they interface directly with employers. That's been a model employed uh, deployed by companies like the Bongo Omada and many others. Uh, so there has to be some creativity in understanding that Healthcare delivery is a highly regulated industry. Um, it has a very, very high bar for failure. Um, and, um, and, and that means that you have to plan your, your products accordingly. You know, I, I think it was version four of the iPhone when it came out. Um, the, there was some problem with the antenna and it dropped calls. Antenna, and, yes. Uh, right. And, and Steve Jobs made, uh, a wonderful speech, uh, it's classic, uh, about how, look, uh, I understand uh, that the stopping calls, other smartphones drop calls too, we're going to get this right and stick with us because we have an amazing product and you'll get it right and you won't be disappointed that you, you stick with us. I did it much more eloquently than I just summarized. But, you know, dropping a call is a nuisance. It's frustrating. But by and large, it does not kill people. Uh, if you have an app that misrepresents something or that, that delays a patient from getting care or any number of other things that interferes with the delivery of healthcare, it can really cause harm to people. So the bar for making sure that the technology works at the time it's introduced is much higher, I think, than it is in a traditional consumer-facing tech, if that makes sense. 
Want a better way to simplify your business finances across expenses, vendor payments, and accounting? If so, Ramp could be a complete game changer. Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to help you save time and put money back in your pocket. Ramp gives finance teams unprecedented control and insight into company spend. With Ramp, you're able to issue cards to every employee with limits and restrictions and automate expense reporting so you can stop wasting time at the end of every month. Ramp's accounting software automatically collects receipts and categorizes your expenses in real time so you don't have to. You'll never have to chase down a receipt again, and your employees will no longer spend hours submitting expense reports. The time you'll save each month on employee expenses will allow you to close your books eight times faster. Ramp's also saves you money. Businesses that use Ramp save an average of 5% the first year. Ramp is easy to use. Get started, issue virtual and physical cards, and start making payments in less than 15 minutes, whether you have five employees or 5,000. And now, get $250 when you join Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash techmeme. Ramp.com slash techmeme. R-A-M-P dot com slash techmeme. Guys, we don't have to choose between hair growth and our health. Nutrafol's drug-free whole-body approach promotes hair growth from within. No compromises, just better hair. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement brand with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair with less shedding. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day. See results in three to six months. While many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In a clinical study, 84% of men showed improvement in their hair after six months taking Nutrafol's men's hair growth supplements. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair for a limited time. Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com men and enter the promo code RIDEHOME. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com slash men, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L dot com slash men, and enter promo code RIDEHOME. Indeed, actually. And that actually kind of, uh, again, I, I report on a lot of these consumer-focused devices that are coming to market now, like, you know, I guess it's just the high penetration of mobile devices in, in all of our lives now is driving a lot of this. Um, and is that, I mean, this is coming back to the thesis of the book, like, being proactive and not reactive, is this is this a key area of, of the moment right now? You know, you, you even talk about, like, the, you know, the Apple Watch heart study that I, I've reported on the idea of your Amazon Alexa listening in to hear if you're coughing or, you know, um, is, this is a lot of, is, is a lot of the revolution that's coming about having this data of doing precision monitoring and stuff like that? Yes, I think it's about empowering us as individuals to understand and have impact over our health in ways that we couldn't in the past. There's been this curious dichotomy, particularly in, in I think, in American society, that we accept responsibility for our finances. We accept responsibility for, you know, making sure that our roof doesn't leak in the house and a host of other things. But we've had this curious disconnect with our health. I think we have... And, and this is obviously a general, uh, generalization, but, but many of us have just assumed, well, you know, if I get sick, I'll go to the doctor, I'll take some medicine, and it'll be fine. 
we haven't focused nearly as much attention on understanding well, what are the determinants of our health? How can we engage in behaviors, plan our lifestyle in ways that ensures we're doing the most to maintain our health? And part of the reason why that that has existed is that we haven't furnished information about health in an actionable way to people in ways that we furnish information about other things going on in, in our lives. Uh, and I think that's one thing that technology, one benefit that technology offers. Every time you and I fly on a plane, those jet engines are being monitored hundreds, thousands of times a minute. Uh, they're beaming information back down to Earth. And the routine maintenance on those engines is done based upon that information being received. Now, most of that's completely out of the awareness of the pilots, unless there's a problem, in which case the pilots are made aware. We should be able to have comparable types of information available on an ongoing basis about our health so that we can intervene before there's a big disaster so that we know what our propensity for certain diseases is um, and that we're able to take the preventative measures based upon those risk factors. And we're only starting to see that really get into our environment today. I think the next five to 10 years, we're going to see a rapid acceleration in the pace of that information becoming available to you and to me. I, I'm so glad you brought up that analogy because I, I, I highlighted it. <laughs> be, the, the idea that, you know, 40 years ago, an airplane would be inspected every few months, uh, whereas now, like, the, the, the health of a plane is being monitored while it's in the air. That's a perfect analogy for what, in theory, we should be able to achieve soon um, with this sort of monitoring technology. Exactly. It's within our grasp. Um, it's not trivial, but it is definitely within our grasp. Can I ask about, um, there's been some discussion recently about, you know, there's a lot of concern by people about their data and, and, and handing over their data and, and especially now their health data. Um, people are worried about the control of their own data, but you write that in the current healthcare system, there are these weird perverse incentives to sort of hoard information and not share it art. So again, how, how should I square this like people's fears of their data, not being under their control versus maybe data isn't being shared enough. And thus the healthcare system is not as efficient as it could be. There are some legitimate concerns about data sharing. I mean, we want to ensure the security of the data and we want to make sure that patients have control over where, where and how their data is being used. That being said, these perverse incentives that I, I write about in the book are related to the fact that for healthcare delivery systems, once a patient is enrolled in a delivery system, it's in the business interest of that system to keep the patient in the system. Uh, and one of the ways of doing that of course, the best way of doing that is making sure that the system's offering outstanding care in a patient-centered way with monitoring of patient satisfaction and all the things that other businesses use to make sure the consumers stay engaged with their services and their products. But another way to keep people in a system is to make it really difficult for their information to be transferred from one place or one system to the next. There's a lot of federal legislation that has been devoted to addressing those problems. 
and making sure that there are regulatory guidelines that require systems to uh, make data transportable and to really place the patient data in the hands and control of the patient when patients want to have that sort of access and control over their data. I'm optimistic, therefore, that the data will be more portable in the future. Um, certainly, we now have the technology needed to make data interchangeable in ways that it wasn't in the past. So it's not per se a technological barrier that's preventing data from one health system be transferred to the other, even if they're on different EHR systems. Those technology barriers are being lowered because of the sophistication in the technology, but there still are some economic and, and business-related barriers that I think the federal regulatory space is helping to address. Uh, finally, you, you write about uh, this precision health uh, vision that you have is one of a high-touch environment, not just a high-tech environment. Like, pre precision health should be about strengthening the doctor-patient relationship, not replacing it, not taking the, the, the doctors, the humans out of the equation, right? Exactly. That's, that's absolutely essential. We've gone through a period for the past 15 to 20 years where I fear that technology has done more to separate healthcare providers from consumers, from patients, than it has been able to bring people together, to bring patients and providers together. We, we have to overcome that. Uh, it, it, I, and that's why I do talk about high-tech enabling high-touch. There's nothing more disappointing um, for a patient, or frankly for a healthcare provider, than when you're as a patient you know, sitting in the exam room the healthcare provider walks in, and the first thing they do is go to the computer terminal and, and start typing. Maybe they say hello, maybe they make eye contact briefly, but then they're looking at the screen and they're typing. And maybe they're listening, hopefully, or maybe they're concentrating on what they have to type in order to complete their documentation requirements. And that just has to change. No one goes to a healthcare provider uh, to be looking at the back of their head while they're typing into a computer terminal. And and we can change that, and, and we just have to push forward and make sure that we do. The book, again, is Discovering Precision Health, Predict, Prevent, and Cure to Advance Health and Well-Being. Dr. Miner, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about this. Thank you very much. It was a privilege being with you.